a lot of what drives my student focus work today is really trying to ensure that students, especially Black students, have a positive law school experience. Because I remember what it was like being one of two or maybe just one of one in your classroom and not having someone at the front of the room that looks like you. Welcome. I'm your host, Rohin Bajram. I'm a leader with a 20-year career trajectory, aspiring storyteller, mom of a son and a fur baby, first-generation immigrant, and uninvited guest in Canada. I'm also on a mission to redefine the faces of leadership through speaking, consulting, and writing. Unspeakable Leadership is a space to reclaim our stories and empower each other to see the value in how we, as women of color, lead. You will hear from extraordinary women I have the honor of getting to know through this podcast and beyond. Whether you're aspiring to be a leader or currently in a leadership role, I hope you'll join me on this journey of unpacking experiences, lessons learned, sharing laughs, and likely a tear or two. Let us grow together in conversation. It gives me great pleasure to welcome another woman who I am extremely excited to be here in conversation with and someone who I think you will get to know more of. Dr. Sarah Gebermuse, or who I hope you'll intimately refer to as Sarah. Dr. Gebermuse is the Castles Chair in Mining Law and Finance and an Assistant Professor at the University of Western Ontario Faculty of Law. Dr. Gebermuse was previously an Assistant Professor at the Peter A. Allard School of Law at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. She has degrees from the University of Alberta, Colton University, the University of Ottawa, the University of Toronto, and York University. She writes, researches, and teaches in the areas of mining law and governance, law and development, transnational law, and human rights. Dr. Gerimuse has published in all of these fields and has presented her research at conferences around the world. Sarah, it is a pleasure to be here in conversation with you, and I have no doubt our conversation is going to not only elicit thought-provoking questions and certainly pauses for many women who are considering an important decision. Let's start off with a first question, and that is, can you share with me a little bit about your leadership journey and what drives you in your work today? Before I get into answering your first question, Rohin, I must applaud you for launching this very important podcast. In the time that I've gotten to know you, you have just done one amazing thing after the other. I hope you take the time to also celebrate yourself and the amazing work that you are doing to launch and promote the Rohin Bajram brand. So kudos to you. And it's such an honor for me to be in the first season of your podcast. When I I was thinking about uh, what my leadership journey would be, part of me was like, do I even consider myself a leader? Given that I am an academic and I still feel like I'm early on in my career, I feel like academia has a way of making you feel that until you've achieved certain benchmarks or reached certain benchmarks, you're not yet senior enough or a leader enough in your field to really claim that title. 
And then I realized I had to remind myself that's probably just my imposter syndrome speaking and that I could speak to a leadership journey that I've had. And my journey has been very circuitous. It was, it's definitely not a straight line. And it involved a lot of trying to find myself, find my place, and figure out where I could do the type of work that I'm really interested and passionate about. I'm driven by a sense of the social justice. I'm a child of Eritrean immigrants who came to Canada in the 80s to escape war back home. That reality was always present in my upbringing and always being reminded that there's family back home, there's inequality around the world. So I've always been driven by this sense of justice. And that's what drove me to study law in the first place. And I never really thought oh, I was going to be a lawyer in the courtroom because I would watch those shows on television. And I never really found that exciting. I don't know why, but I just never really did. That was not really what drove me. Instead, I thought, okay, if you're really going to actually enact change in this world, you're not necessarily going to do that by arguing what seems like really pointless cases in a courtroom. Instead, I might want to actually work on the policy and research side of things. But how that led me to academia was thinking that this is actually something I can do. And that's where I said this journey was really circuitous because there were very few, very few women of color, let alone Black women, who were teaching me in my post-secondary journey. I can count on one hand the number of Black women who I've encountered in my various university programs. And you know from my bio, I've been around the block when it comes to university education. And that always made me think that, okay, maybe this isn't something that is actually possible. And it wasn't until I actually tried it working as a teaching assistant at York that I thought, okay, there is some value in being a Black woman at the front of the classroom and a Black woman who's taking up space in post-secondary education. And then I could channel that into the different leadership roles that I think are important. And a lot of my leadership has been around student activism and working to promote and to advance the experiences of Black students. So I was involved in various Black student groups from my undergrad into law school and into my PhD. And then now as a professor, and this is a lot of what also drives my student-focused work today, is really trying to ensure that students, especially Black students, have a positive law school experience. Because I remember what it was like being maybe one of two or maybe just one of one in your classroom and not having someone at the front of the room that looks like you. I'm really driven by this desire to create positive experiences for people that look like me. That's incredible, Sarah. I can't thank you enough for, in many ways, articulating your leadership journey in a way that I can imagine anyone hearing will resonate in the essence of saying, that's me, or that sounds like me, or that sounds like my experience. And I also can imagine you've held back a lot of what you have had to work through 
sometimes be on the receiving end of. And I say this because I think we, as women of color, we often find ourselves on the brunt end of different expectations and margins of error that are very different to those of perhaps our counterparts. I'd love to tease out a little bit about what you just shared. And, and it was such a powerful statement, which is that throughout your leadership journey and part of being in academia was finding yourself and finding your place. Can you tell me a little bit more about what does that actually entail in terms of an environment that allows you to grow and thrive? What might that look like for you? Yeah, that really has been a critical part of just feeling like I could thrive in this role because there are so few Black women that I encountered in my post-secondary education. And even just now, if you think about the number of Black women legal academics across Canada, I always thought, okay, you have to be exceptional to be in this role. And as you pointed out, there's very little margin for error for women of color, and I would say even for Black women in particular. And I felt like to make my way in this profession and in this field, I would have to be better than best. I would have to excel in ways that my counterparts would not be expected to. And rather than finding that environment that made me thrive, it just compounded the insecurities and the imposter syndrome that I felt. And I never was in a place where I was told like, what you're doing, that's enough. Like you are doing more than you need to do. It was kind of like, instead, what's expected of me is I have to continue to be that superwoman, that black superwoman. And, and that's what's necessary for me to be accepted in a place. And so I would produce, produce, and produce and do work that the university would value. And then on the other hand, I would go to the institution and say, have you thought about the X, Y, and Z, or can we push for, create these different programs to support black students or to increase representation of black students and faculty in our programs? I never really felt that those initiatives or that other work that I was looking to do was rewarded in the same way, or at least valued in the same way. That that conflict or that juxtaposition, not feeling who I genuinely am, is being supported wholeheartedly. Then I'm like, this is, to say it bluntly, it's exploitation. <laughs> it really is. And so I was willing to put up with it for so much and for so long. But when an opportunity arose where I thought, okay, here I could be fully valued for who I am. My research can be valued. My teaching contributions can be valued. Even my service work could be valued. I jumped on that opportunity right away. And I don't think that's something that most people, especially women of color, at this stage of an academic career are going to get. And my thinking was, this great opportunity has come my way. Why not take advantage of it now and see what I can do when I'm in an environment where I feel that every aspect of, as I said, my teaching, my research, my service, 
would actually be valued and supported. And I'm still very early in the role, but I, I do feel a big difference in having that luxury to be authentically myself. And that really shouldn't be a luxury. <laughs> it really should be the standard for women of color. But it's not always the case that every environment that you find yourself in is going to fully support you. And so I had to be honest with myself and say, there's only so much of this I can take. And if a better opportunity presents itself, I'm going to jump on it. I really appreciate you sharing the, the complexity behind making such a, a critical decision in one's career. And especially as you, you highlighted, Sarah, uh, part of the journey, I think, for a lot of women of color and racialized women, uh, depending on the terminology that resonates for those who are listening, is that when you start, I think, early on in your career, there's perhaps very little compromise that we can make, right? We're saying yes versus no. And what we know the system, and in particular sectors like higher education value, is they value overachieving. They value ambition. They val The value and the currency that is there is doing more and exceeding expectations. And we can only do that for so long. Right? It's a battle. I know for me, it was an internal battle of at what point in time do I get to just be versus continuously doing and doing and doing. You've highlighted that. And what I also appreciate you highlighting is the empowerment that you could exercise at some point. And again, many people don't get there. And so huge, huge, huge kudos to you for getting to the point of a crossroads and saying, do I stay or do I go? And then using yourself and your experiences and what you deserved as your lens and your compass to make that decision allowed you to leave. Yeah. And not many of us leave. This is the thing. Do you know a woman or a friend who this episode may resonate with? Share this episode with them. They might just need to hear this today. Having a tenure track position is a privilege, right? And so there's so many you know, who are trying to get into this career and are struggling and don't have those same opportunities. I understood the privilege that I had when I first got the position at, at UBC. I was still working on my PhD. I wasn't even a full-on doctor just yet. Looking back on it, I entered the role with the sense of gratitude or that I owed the institution something. Because again, I know this is likely the imposter syndrome or some other, other idiosyncrasies speaking, but it was like, I owed them for this opportunity because, I mean, they could have given the job to anyone but I'm the lucky one that they decided to bestow this opportunity on, as opposed to thinking, okay, I earned this. They should be lucky that I'm willing to come here and do this work. But instead it was like, okay, I have to be grateful for this opportunity that I've been given because there are just so few of these out there. I think when I was younger and perhaps maybe just full of more confidence, I didn't think that way. I often think back that maybe it's a factor of working in law, where law is very hierarchical, it's very male-dominated and white male-dominated. 
that you start to really undermine and question yourself and think, like, am I worthy of being here? Do I deserve to be here? Because every step of the way, and I'm sure this is compounded probably like a hundred times more for Black, Indigenous, and other racialized women. It's just every move you make, you get questioned. Every input that you're trying to provide, you get questioned. And then you start to second guess and question yourself and start to think, can I cut it? Do I have what it takes to make it in this profession? That was still my mentality when, as someone who's yet to complete their PhD, I get an interview, I get a contract position at UBC, and then I was able to convert that into a tenure track job. And then, because again, these positions feel so rare, like making the decision to then leave one is difficult. And then, mind you, I went from being an assistant professor at UBC to having a chair at Western. So it is a promotion that, again, especially at this stage of someone's career, is very rare and uncommon. But there was still this thought of, okay, there are things that I could be giving up at UBC if I were to leave. Though that my sense of security at UBC did dwindle over the years, there was still that sense of security. As in, I've been at this place, I'm comfortable, I know the faculty, and it's that the devil you know versus the devil you don't. And it was also Vancouver. And then when something comes across your desk, and when it's in a place like Western, in London, Ontario, I, the institutions are comparable, but there's just some things about UBC and Vancouver that are just so attractive that Western and London, Ontario just cannot offer. And so deciding to move across the country for, at the end of the day is really, if you think about it, it's a title. On paper, it's a title. But in practice, it's been so much more because I'm finally, as I said, in a position where I feel so much of what I have to offer is valued. I was tired of just feeling like I was surviving in the job. I really needed to be in a place where I could thrive. And it's because this job, and it sounds crazy to think of it because it is such a privileged position to have, but the job and working in higher education, it takes a mental and physical toll on you, especially as a woman of color. If I'm going to have any longevity in this career, I have to be in a place where I feel and I know my mental and physical well-being is not going to be harmed in any way. I can't fully protect myself. I can't live in a bubble in this career, but at least knowing that I could be in a place where the harm that could come from doing this work is not the same type of harm that I'd been experiencing. There's so many things that you've shared that resonate with me in terms of acknowledging, which I think sometimes we, we don't do enough of as you know, racialized women in leadership roles, is the privilege, the privilege that we eventually earn over time because of sticking with it or staying in places that have created harm. And I think of how vicious that cycle is in 
working towards this goal and you know in some cases working up this the ladder and the hierarchy mm-hmm. and finding the oxygen get depleted every time you move further up or further forward and what i'm also reflecting on that you shared sarah is at some point in time it sounds like the decision uh is this the right place and right environment for me it doesn't come down to sometimes a logical one or at least one that people can understand right <laughs> and and people will have expectations and they'll have questions and they will have their own opinions and so it doesn't come down to logical rational reasons that people can understand however the reasons become logical and rational for you and they make sense to you if i can offer a story that just happened a few days ago that i'm still sitting with so picture this we're at white spot i'm uh, grabbing lunch with a, a colleague who i absolutely admire and they are early on in their career and we're just catching up and we do this monthly as part of just a check in so they're sharing some of the experiences that they're having navigating their new role etc and they say oh i actually used to work at white spot and i was like oh cool and i shared i used to work at mcdonald's this was one of my first jobs way back in the day and then this wonderful individual said to me i interviewed for the role and then i got the role and about a few weeks into the role i was told to get rid of my nails because she has really long gorgeous nails and i'm like what and so i say what did you do and she responded i quit and i laughed so hard <laughs> i laughed for two reasons the first one was i was not expecting that answer yeah i wasn't I, expecting that answer either. what <laughs> i thought she must have cut her nails yes, she needed that job exactly <laughs> so that was my first was like that was the first reaction i was laughing because she actually checked that was her response and then the other part of laughing was how much of my initial judgment was oh you cut your nails like that's yeah. that's just what you do yeah you you're asked to do something you get it done mm-hmm. and she's so early on in her career and i said to her you know what i am so proud of you and i don't mean this in a condescending way i mean this as a woman to woman I am so proud of you because you are perhaps learning about your worth and learning how to make the best decisions for yourself way early on in your career that many of us struggle to learn until much later. Mm-hmm. And I think you've also done the same for us here as part of what you've shared is you have helped all of us reflect on what matters to us what environments truly truly see us accept us value us and that's not an easy decision to make and so i am so happy for you that you're in a different headspace a different physical space that will continue it's my hope to honor you and as we wrap up our time together which i cannot believe went by so fast and i still have probably 20,000 more questions <laughs> this is sometimes where i'm like 
podcasts are hard because these are conversations that you can have for hours and hours. And it's why I hope we could continue this conversation as part of a next episode. However, I am cognizant that you've shared already so much. And it's my hope that anyone listening will reflect on perhaps where they might be, how they can make the best decisions for themselves, because we do deserve a life that we love and a career where we thrive. And so I'll end off with a question to you, Sarah, which is for anyone listening and who is perhaps early on in their journey, what advice would you give them so that maybe they will just be slightly more informed in making the best decision for themselves as to whether they should stay or go? Be selfish. You really have to make a decision that is best for you. And for women of color, I think we have so many obligations, right? You don't just have obligations to yourself. You have obligations to your family. You might have obligations to your friends. You feel like you have obligations oftentimes even to your community, right? There are a lot of competing interests and demands on your time and energy that you often feel like, okay, you can't make a decision that suits yourself and allows you to be authentically yourself in a role. Hearing that story about your friend and colleague who quit White Spot because they were asked to cut off their nails, that is the type of selfishness and and trying to live in your authenticity that I think we all need to strive for. Because she wasn't thinking, okay, I need the money. I need this experience. I just can't leave this job. She was thinking, if I can't be in this role, being truly 110% of who I am, then these people don't deserve me. And she moved on. And I'm sure she probably landed a new job easily, given the way she carries herself in this world. And so I think we should all strive to do that. I grew up in Canada. I didn't have the experience of being born somewhere else and learning about what life would be like in a non-white majority country. And so I feel like a lot of us who have grown up here, even those who've come later, we feel like we have to conform to the mainstream and to what we need to do to survive in this white majority country. And that oftentimes feels, okay, we have to make sacrifices around not just our nails and our hair and what we wear, but also biting your tongue and not saying something in a meeting because you don't want to come off as being, you know, the angry black woman or the angry indigenous woman. Or you have to take on certain roles because it's okay. Otherwise, my value and worth to them is not going to be the same because I'm saying no to things. But we're not getting anything in return for those sacrifices. And there comes a point in time where you got to just be like your friend who is at white spot and be like, if I can't be my true self, then I quit and I need to go somewhere where I can. Because these institutions will take and take and take as much from you as you're willing to give. And if you're not going to draw the line somewhere and say, you know what, I'm going to start giving to myself 
and looking out for my best interests, then you're just going to deteriorate and deteriorate. And looking out for yourself and your best interests is going to be beneficial to those around you. I've given up some things in my personal life moving across Canada, right? My family's in Western Canada, flying from London to visit family and friends in Western Canada is not easy. I'm also in a community in a city where I don't really know a whole lot of people. But being in this position and being a research chair at this stage of my career and probably being one of so few Black women research chairs at law schools in this country. There's more that I can do in this position than I could have done if I stayed at UBC and was an assistant professor. Maybe over time, some of those benefits would have come, but I had to make a decision that I knew would be beneficial to me. And I trust that this decision is not just going to benefit me in the short term and in the long term, but it's going to have benefits for my family and my community as well. To be selfish. Um, yes, absolutely. And huge congratulations, Sarah. It is an honor to be in the company of what I'm going to now call you the chair, because yes, we need to celebrate the milestones, the achievements that many of our fellow racialized women are achieving. And a huge congratulations to you because you are doing phenomenal things. And you're not just thinking of yourself, you're also thinking of how the impact can be scalable for many other communities. So thank you for your time. Thank you for your willingness to open up to us and to share. I have no doubt that many of the things you have highlighted will be things that others will be thinking about. Thank you for your honesty, your truth. And as always, a pleasure to be with you in conversation. Thank you. The pleasure's online, Rohin, because, yeah, chatting with you and getting any of your time is, is always truly enjoyable. I learn from you every time we talk, and this was no exception. Thank you. Thank you. The labels are endless. Difficult, disruptive, angry. Like most of you, I've had these labels imposed on me, and the chipping away of my soul is at times a slow and painful destruction of my faith in a system or any hope that I will truly belong in an environment or organization that I'm in. In 2018, the Center for Community Organizations released a tool that was titled The Problem, problem in quotations, Women of Color in the Workplace. This tool is a visual representation of how a woman of color enters the organization and over time, their reality shifts from being described as a honeymoon to what many of us would describe as a toxic work environment. The outcome, the woman of color exits the organization. I remember coming across this tool and feeling validated because of the description and how similar it was to my experience. It helped me understand how, in my experience, pointing out the gaps due to the injustices that I simply couldn't unsee felt both heavy and also possible to change or impact. However, my experience shifted from being celebrated for my ideas 
to being ostracized because of the labels. Oh, the labels! What I've always wondered about the tool is how unfair the outcome of exiting had to be in some cases the only choice. In 2022, McKinsey and Company released a report that showed 46% of women of color indicated that they were planning to leave their job in the next three to six months. In 2023, Statistics Canada funded a study focused on the Canadian gender wage gap, and amongst many of the insightful statistics garnered, they found that the gender wage gap faced by Indigenous women. And immigrant women who landed in Canada as adults were about twice as large than those faced by Canadian-born women and immigrant women who landed as children. Many of these links that I highlight are in the show notes. All of these statistics remind me of how systemic levers impact who enters the leadership arena, with the odds hardly in the favor of women of color. Now I have shed tears over the many years saying farewell to powerful, educated, brilliant, articulate, and kind leaders—all women of color. The conscious and deep leadership that women of color bring is being bled out of our systems, articulating the nuances and complexities embedded within words, processes. And in my sector, our favorite word, pedagogy. This is the institutional memory that has not been documented, and is exiting alongside women of color. The commitment to center and to build capacity, knowing that dignity and compassion is required at the heart of real conversations and reconciled steps. Simply will not happen without them. So, I still hold a grudge against this outcome. I do, and I also hold gratitude that the choice of leaving is an empowering move. There's an African proverb that says, "When sleeping women wake, mountains move." What's one thing, just one, you can do differently today to awake your strengths? Always remember, the world needs more of you being just you. As always, take care of yourself, and see you soon.